who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody, we're here. Um, yay. Good to be back. First podcast of the new year. And I'm, and I'm double checking to make sure I have the right mic on. I'm still traumatized. Yeah, you, you sound fine. That episode that I recorded with my camera mic where I yeah, sound Yeah, like you know, it, was, it felt like you were talking from the bit, bottom of a fishbowl, but I wasn't sure <laughs> why. So it's 2024. I will have no problem remembering to write that anywhere because it seems like it's been a long time coming at this point. My birthday is this week. After this podcast, I will have my have had my birthday and just trying to get back into the groove of the new year. Why don't we just, honey, take a second to talk about, you know, what's going on. I know what's going on with you. Yeah. Yes, it's the Star Wars novel, The Glass <laughs> Abyss, which is in an interesting place. I've, I've taken a, an odd way of doing it 
where I knew I was going to be in uncertainty for a lot of this because it's like a lot of different aspects that are percolating and I'm allowing my, I'm trusting my unconscious mind to, to, if I just write and just do stuff that the shape, you know, and I knew what the, what the plot was and I knew all the major events, but I didn't understand a lot of the thematic things or even some of the internal things with the characters and so forth. So I just had to kind of throw it up there and then see what's there. And it's, it has been stressful. But I think that considering I had to do it on a short time frame while we were working on other things and while the holidays were coming in, it was the best way I could I could think of to be sure that I would deliver something that was appropriate, you know, and something Not that, honored the, fans, that honored the great. mythos. Not just appropriate. Well, awesome. you know, you know, the the, the 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 critical thing is that it be appropriate. The the desired thing is that it be great. Yeah. You know, that, that, that the, it's like understanding what the minimum is that the job calls for and then aiming for the stars. But if you have a time limit on you, you you know, art isn't finished. It escapes. You know, there is a point at which you have to send it in. <laughs> um, and true. so it's, it's trying to be sure that it's as sturdy and alive as possible. And what I'm planning to do is to send a PDF or actually a word document and a link to the dynamic Google Doc, which means that I can continue to work on it, even as they're working on getting me notes. You know, I can actually get in there and, and, and play with it so that they can put notes directly in there. And I think that it'll speed up that process. So it's just it's just that and trying to balance, you know, find joy during the holidays, you know, with with three major holidays and, you know, two birthdays within, you know, a couple of months, really. It compacts a lot of of stress and stress can be positive or negative things but it impacts and uh, but anyway that's that's kind of my opening salvo what about you i gotta say the january 5th birthday not great you know i have a niece that her birthday is on the 27th and 28th of december also not great but definitely by the 5th the festive spirit is wearing thin. I even have trouble mustering a festive spirit by January 5th. And our poor son's birthday is January 11th. So, But by then, I think there's a little bit more of a rebound. I think the 5th is just a little bit too close to uh, the end of the holidays. And yeah, over the so-called break, finish a revision, a second revision on the pilot script we're doing, adapting my most popular novel series. I won't say what it is. It hasn't been announced, but... (laughs) Where <laughs> we there's wonder what it could be. There's a director attached, which is super exciting. And now there's a pilot script, and they're gonna try to get a showrunner attached. I mean, this executive right. is really trying to make this the whole package before we even go out looking for a home. He's really covering all of his bases. And it is super fun when you find an executive who's willing to work with the dynamic document and put the notes directly in that document. So yeah, although that's uh, that was that's great. a writer duet, not Google. Yeah, that was Writer Duet. And uh, Writer Duet, by the way, if you don't know, is a screenwriting program. It's free. There's a free version. We have the pro version, which enables you to access it offline. But online, the free version, we were working on that and selling scripts off that for years. So Yeah, it's Writer true. Duet. I mean, I, I, really, I really do love it because you can look at your script on your phone, you know, oh, yes. on, your, on your tablet, you know, on your desktop computer, your laptop computer, and being able to... You know, I, I forget what the name of that program is that a lot of people use. Final Draft. No, no, no. Well, oh. Final Draft is certainly is certainly a, 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 the industry standard 
Yeah. In a lot of ways. But there is there's another program that people use for writing that you have to be very careful to close it before you open it on a Scrivener. different Scrivener, yeah. And I have had text disappear because of that. If if there was ever I hate Scrivener. A, an online version of Scrivener would be perfect. Something that is as stable as Google Doc, but as powerful as Scrivener would be absolutely perfect. But I'm not willing to take chances that that my enthusiasm for an idea, you know, I open up a document on a second on a second platform and all of a sudden I've scrambled my file. No. That's, that I'm only has to happen once and it did. And I'm never gonna let that happen again. It's bad enough worrying about Google. So it's it's really important that you you create backup files. You know, you download backup files and email them to yourself, that kind of thing, so that you're, you've got that security that the work you do is never going to completely disappear. At the most, you might lose a couple days of work. You, know, no, you have to be prepared for that. I don't even want to think about losing any, like, five minutes of work, frankly. But we Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> putting it online, I've, you know, with, with the programs like Google, I haven't had a problem of losing things. But even so, it's still a good idea to download the document because you don't want to be the test case. You, know, you don't yeah, want to be the one, oh, that's, that guy's five years of work on his book just vanished. Oh, please, don't even put that in the universe. So it happens. It it's happened to anybody within hearing of this podcast. Yeah. Well, I want to bring out our guest. We have a great yes. guest who's actually been, you know, the podcast is our kitchen table on the air. But Ezra has actually pretty much been at our real kitchen table, so to speak. He's a mixed race, black and white writer and illustrator. His critically acclaimed graphic novel series, The Changers, began a unique career peppered with collaborative multimedia projects ranging from video games to animation to feature documentaries. And he's also now, this is an old bio, I can just tell by what's not on here. <laughs> he's, he's writing The People Under the Stairs for Monkey Paw Productions. They're doing a reboot. He has a short story in Jordan Peele's anthology out there screaming. And you, you didn't know this before, Ezra, but I've added your story pressure to my syllabus for this upcoming quarter at, at UCLA. Please welcome, he can talk about himself more than I can, Ezra Clayton Daniel. Ezra, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that you didn't read that entire bio because oh, that's the bio for my website. That's like, it's really my, it's my draft for the Wikipedia page that no one has written about me yet. So I'm like, oh, if, when someone finally does want to write my Wikipedia page, I've got it all ready to go. It's on my website, but it's You need it's to just extensive. go ahead and put that up yourself, you know? Ah, that feels like... <laughs> Nobody has to know what we do. You know, double check all yeah. the facts, you know, and uh, <laughs> just go right ahead. Because it's so weird. You're right. They just pop up, you know, like... I, I know. At one point, someone had written one about my mom and I was like, oh shoot, I should have done that. <laughs> Did you get in there and modify it? Huh? Oh, it was actually very thorough. I really didn't have to. They were a scholar. They just, you know, they laid it all out there. I just felt like it should have been my job. (laughs) So Ezra, welcome. I mean, we were just saying in the green room that you haven't had a real vacation over the so-called holiday since you started screenwriting. And I would love to, to begin there with what a sort of a demanding industry this is, you know, and, and, and yeah. how you're, and also how you're managing to thrive in such a demanding industry. Let's go there too. 
Well, um, I don't know. Does it, it feel? Does it feel like thriving? It does yes. feel like thriving. It feels very exciting, but it's screenwriting is still so new to me that I feel like I haven't. I haven't. I don't want to say earns, but I don't feel like I have the luxury to say no or to like or to push opportunities. Like I've been screenwriting since like right before the pandemic. And it's, it's still, it's, it's an enormous dream come true. I feel so grateful and lucky for every opportunity that I have and every opportunity that I get feels like it might be the last one. And so I'm I'm definitely screenwriting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure that never ends, but I'm definitely like, you know, always trying. And I come, I'm from the Midwest. And so I have this like Midwest work ethic where I'm like, I always try to like turn in things early. I always try to blow everybody's expectations away I always want to like knock people's socks off with everything I do so yeah it can be a lot and I I hope soon I'll I'll have had enough success to to be able to pull back and like you know, I th- you know something <laughs> what you just said suggests to me that you're not going to have a problem because as long as you have that work ethic thing that in one sense it's just a job it's just something you get up chop wood carry water do it turn it in that attitude, that Midwest attitude, I mean, you know that like McDonald's franchises, no farmer has ever had a, who, who opened a McDonald's franchise has ever failed. That the, the, the ethic of, of knowing that you, that there are certain kinds of work that you have to do, you just do mm-hmm. applied to the arts cuts all cuts through so much of the bullshit. So much of the, you know, you know, look at me, you know, I'm, I'm special, which we all have within us. And we need to learn how to mature that with an adult work ethic and adult, you know, ego control in order to be able to protect the part of us that does the creativity. So the fact that, that you went there immediately talking about your responsibilities to the field and you're so grateful and you know you're the way you're going to express that gratitude is by doing your best work and turning it in early and blowing people away to me that's exactly the attitude that a successful artist needs yeah and that's self-fulfilling prophecy right there sir yeah. well let me let me ask wow. you about I love this. it that I, makes me feel so much better well, Great. I, I <laughs> that's what we're here for buddy you're about as new to screenwriting actually newer than I am I mean I so I'm like, how did, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it. So don't say anything you're not allowed to talk about, but how do you end up working for Monkey Paw doing a reboot of such a classic horror film? You know, one of Jordan Peele's favorite horror films. Yeah. I mean, it's, I still can't believe that, that it happened, but I think for me, it was, so I come from the comic book world. I'd put out a couple of uh, graphic novels that made a pretty big splash in the comics industry in their indie graphic novels. So they weren't like Marvel and DC things, but I did kind of a, uh, a one-two punch of graphic novels that I was chipping away at for years and years and years before I finished them, but they both happened to come out around the same time. The first one was called Upgrade Soul, which was nominated for an Eisner and every other major comics award. And, and it won the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics. Oh. And Dwayne McDuffie is... We love Mc, Dwayne McDuffie, so yeah. Such a huge inspiration and such a, an honor to win that award. But that really opened up a lot of doors. And then uh, my next book, Bottom Feeders, which is a... It's a, we pitched it as kind of black tremors. It's like a, it's a sci-fi horror satire about gentrification in in South Chicago. And so both of those books, Bottom Feeders is also nominated for an Eisner and some other comics award. So both of those books made kind of a big splash in comics. And naturally Hollywood is always looking for a new IP and they're always looking for anything that has a little bit of a buzz. So there were some people sniffing around both those properties. I have a literary agent in my, the literary agency that I'm, that I'm with has a partnership with Paradigm 
mm-hmm. management. And so by through this literary agency, I was connected with a, a film and TV agent at Paradigm. And so they they started bringing people in and sold the film rights to Upgrade Soul and then sold the film rights to Bottom Feeders. And Bottom Feeders just happened to be in the wake of Get Out. Bottom Feeders was, was one of those things that was like, it really just checked all the boxes of what people were looking for and the kind of stuff that Monkey Paul was doing. So my um, I got a manager and he was very aggressive about getting bottom feeders into the hands of anybody at Monkey Paw. And he knew some people over at Monkey Paw. So he got them bottom feeders. They really liked bottom feeders, but because it deals with gentrification in Chicago, it was a little too close to Candyman, which is what they were working on at the same oh, time. Right. So they were like, bottom feeders probably isn't the best fit for us, but they liked what I did. And they kind of like, and they took a meeting with me and we got along great. And so we're kind of just like, we were on each other's radar. And then my manager found out that they were looking for someone to adapt people under the stairs. And so he set me up with a meeting and had a great call, call with them, great conversation. And I had a couple of ideas for where I might like to take it. And they liked it. And then, you know, then it just goes through the whole process of like, you know, write some pages. And I wrote some pages. They liked it and just kept on. And then the ball was rolling. And then it kept on being like, just like I had the whole pitch and the outline and everything. And that yeah. is great. So it was based that's I love that you transitioned from the comics into the screenwriting world, which is fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating journey. And you also I don't you didn't mention this. You're not only writing, but you're illustrating. Did you illustrate both comics? I know you illustrated Upgrade uh, Soul. Yeah, no, I illustrated Upgrade Soul and Upgrade Soul famously took me about 17 years to finish from beginning to end. And that was like from conception to end. And I had day jobs and like I was doing user interface design for software companies. I was a trial graphics consultant for many years. And, the, and and while I was doing that work, I was spending nights and weekends chipping away at Upgrade Soul. And after I finally finished Upgrade Soul, I was like, I'm never going to draw another comic. It just It's just so much work to draw a comic. So I hired a friend of mine, Ben Passmore, uh, who's a fantastic illustrator to draw bottom feeders. <laughs> that makes sense. I, I can relate uh, based on what I've heard from other illustrators. So Upgrade Soul did great. It has the comic. It got optioned for film. There's also an audio adaptation on on Audible. So so that's fantastic. And that's a world we're very curious about as well. How did that come about? Yeah, that was, God, I can't even remember. I think it was, I, I tend to take more credit for that than I deserve, but I'm a huge old time radio fan. Like I, when I, when I was drawing my first graphic novel, I was listening to Dimension X, like X minus one. Yeah. Old time radio shows. Yeah. And even like the, the, I love the sci-fi ones, but even like the Whistler and suspense, like I loved all those shows. And it was, this was like before podcasts. This is like the late nineties that I was drawing this my first comic book. And I always fantasized about writing for that medium. But in the late 90s, there was no market for it. There was no podcast. iPods weren't a thing. So there was like nothing like that. But I still always wanted to work in that field. And so when that stuff started to happen, I was always kind of keeping my eyes open for opportunities. And then when Upgrade Soul came out, it made a little bit of a splash, like I said. And and I was talking to my agent about adaptations. And I was like, you know, it would be really cool is to adapt graphic novels. It seems like a really like untapped field for for uh, audio dramas and so he reached out to some producers over at audible and they liked the idea they were coming off of a wolverine audio drama that was actually really really good so i can't say that this was the first graphic it definitely wasn't the first graphic novel adapted but Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of the early ones and so it was kind of a an uncharted territory that that we dove into so it was so my the editorial was pretty lax on it they kind of just gave me a page count and and I ran with it and 
yeah, it was a really, it was a really interesting experience. That's fun. Tell people what we've been talking about Upgrade Soul. What's it? Give us the elevator pitch. What's it about? So Upgrade Soul is about a elderly couple who go, who decide to fund and go through an experimental rejuvenation procedure. Little do they know that the rejuvenation procedure utilizes cloning technology and they're inadvertently cloned. And their clones, while vastly superior intellectually and physically, are severely disfigured. So the I'll whole- say... <laughs> So the story is really an interrogation of identity. It's like, is your identity wrapped up in the person that we know who looks and acts and sounds like the person we know? Or is your identity wrapped up in your potential and your memories? Because the disfigured clones have photo recall memory of everything that's ever happened in their lives. So the individual as a vessel for uh, a catalog of the events of a person's life versus the individual as a living, breathing, thinking, interacting person going through the world. So there is a, a classic philosophical speculation was that the ship of theseus or something of that nature yes yeah 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 you know what 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 are we and how much of us can you replace before you're not you anymore or in this particular case could a clone be you if it has your memories Uh, you know i was just thinking as everyone was talking steve would you want photographic recall of every event in your life as long as i didn't have to as long as it wasn't coming up to me randomly. I mean, if, if I had to, th- you know, in other words, if, if I, if my memories were like a filing cabinet mm. and I could access them on demand, yeah, I would. But I said, what I would, what would be terrible is if that stuff was just breaking through all the time. That's I what I'm control. saying. That would be, that would be hell. I feel like as I was going to sleep at night, which is when the unwanted thoughts creep in, I don't know about y'all, it would just be like a kaleidoscope of all the worst Well, that's stuff. the specific <laughs> thing I was saying I would not want. It could be a nightmare, but hopefully it would entail the the emotional wisdom to navigate that kaleidoscope. Well, I mean, I think that that to the degree that learning is remembering, and I think that to a vast degree it is, and that learning is also a matter of moving things from conscious memory to unconscious competence, that a photographing memory that still respected that process that we have to not have to think about things all the time in order to function would be a staggering upgrade. Mm -hmm. It would be fantastic because our memories are so fluid and so plastic and we often don't really remember what happened. I think that there are some emotional advantages to that dimming, but as long as you had to make a voluntary access of things, I wouldn't mind knowing, I wouldn't mind being able to go to my fourth birthday party and see my mom and dad, you mm. know, you know, that would be fantastic. Yeah. You know, if, if I, as long as I, as long as it couldn't break through to consciousness when about the things I didn't want to access. Yeah. Right. And also, what if you look like Mr. Potato Head, which is where <laughs> a great soul is taking it. As long as there's a Mrs. Potato Head, I would. <laughs> That's all that matters. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. And that's ultimately the the point of Upbraid Soul. As long as you have your Mrs. Potato Head, that's right. it's fine. Well, <laughs> one good spud deserves another. <laughs> <laughs> well, just congratulations to you, Ezra. Because well, I mean, first of all, you you worked really hard on that project, and I'm sure you worked very hard on everything you've done. So even though you are relatively new to screenwriting, you've been putting in the work. And mm-hmm. there are ways in which I think we're all getting our toes into this industry at a good time, I guess. Not as good as 2020 or 2021. Can we please have our listeners pay attention to that 17-year? Yeah. Remember? That when you're looking at people who are successful and think, oh, my God, you know, overnight success, working with Jordan Peele. Yeah, 17 years of work, <laughs> working other jobs and doing it on the weekends without any certainty that anything is going to happen. He had that level of clarity. People with that level of clarity are hard to stop. True. Well, and Ezra, speaking of that, let me ask you, because, you know, I published a book last year called The Reformatory, plug, plug, that took me not 17, but it felt like it, seven years to write. And I reached a point, where, it was because of COVID, actually, where I really felt like I had to grind and get it, just get it done. I was tired of it being in process. I wanted it to be finished. Did you have a, a turning point? where you were able to turn more focus into it at the finish line? Or was it just really just a little piece here, a little piece there, all the way to the finish line? I don't know if it was a, tur- a turning point, but I think that's a that's a really good question. I think I I saw what I wanted this thing to be. And I I came from I I I came from a world of of constant rejection in my creative work. Like I'd been pitching comics and, and nobody was interested in the comics that I wanted to do. And so I got to a point where I saw my comics and my stories as just being a representation of what I was capable as a creator, just 
and that's the value of it. It just says like, this is what I'm capable as a creator rather than trying to find an audience. So I looked at Upgrade Soul as like, if I die the day after Upgrade Soul came out, I don't care if nobody sees Upgrade Soul, but the but the universe will know what I was capable as an of as an artist. And so I think that was the thing that really drove me. And I think one of the reasons it took me so long to do it was because of that ethos or that or that that goal that I had. Because every time I, as I was working on it, if I came up with an idea that you know a revision that I wanted to do that would make it better because I had no editorial oversight and no publishers knocking down my door being like, you have to get it done by this date. I would go back and make that change and make that revision, even if it meant redrawing 50 pages that I'd already redrawn or or scrapping the whole third act of the story because I came up with a better idea. And by virtue of spending 17 years working on the project, starting from like age 22 or whatever, I was obviously naturally becoming a better person, a more well-rounded person with, mm. with greater experiences. And so I was bringing all of this new maturity over the course of that decade and a half back to this project as I was going along. And so there was just a lot of revision and going back and forth on it. That's that's just so great. You know, when I was uh, reading the comic, the comic, I noticed there's a, an aside, at least, that mentions Hollywood. And one of your characters uh, was mounting a project where the leads were supposed to be black, and then the network had turned around and cast a white actor. So identity and race are appearing in that comic. These are black characters you're writing. I love the way you use identity in your short story in the Jordan Peele anthology. You've often described yourself to me as a white presenting black person, which sounds like someone who, at least based on the short story, I feel like I know you now. Now from reading this short story, Ezra. It's very like, personal, it's, that story. Like it's you're an outsider in your own family, too. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that, not necessarily specifically, you know, talking about family members, but what what kind of relationship you have with identity and how it helps power your work. I mean, it's there's an element of of duality in everything that I do. And I think a big part, and we were talking in the green room too. I think a big part of of what I do is is fueled by insecurity about not being a trope. And like like I like the last thing I want to ever do is fall into my own like wallow in my own self-pity as like a tragic mulatto story. Like oh, I'm, yeah. that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not interested in that. But I think there's something interesting about just the duality of I think there's so much of identity that's that comes down to how you are perceived by the world. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you if you and I think that's what Upgrade Soul is largely about, like if you look look a certain way and the world treats you a certain way, that's entirely what governs the way you move through the world. So it doesn't even like in some ways, it doesn't matter how you feel on the inside. Like if you're treated a certain way, that's how you move through the world. Like, and can think, you get a cab in New York City or can you not get a cab? In New exactly. York exactly. <laughs> and I think that's something that I've come I to do think you know, this is. Because this podcast deals with writing and life and the tools of life and writing, talking about this is not separate from the thematic of the show. To to talk about the way human beings navigate the world, I, I would like to, to make a comment here. And that is that the way the world treats you definitely has a powerful impact on the way you navigate the world, the way the world sees you. But the way you feel about yourself and how you define yourself and what you think of the way the world thinks about you is critical because, you know, for instance, you could be caught between the tragic mulatto 
is the one who it's tragic from the sense of, oh, they're not quite white. That's what they were talking about. In the 21st century, the problem is more of being caught between the clearly defined polarities. I'm not this. These people don't consider me this. People don't consider me that. And asking what that is and who you are then becomes really essential so that you can decide how you're going to deal with the way people are treating you. That will influence your emotions. Your emotions influence your actions. And to a certain degree, the quality of our lives is based on how we feel about ourselves and our lives and what results we can get. So it's a critical question. The question is shifted a little bit right now. It's not, it's not that everybody should want to be white and God, they're so close, but not quite there. It's that it is good to have a tribe. Mm-hmm. And the tribal definitions in America are insane. There's no consistency to them. So navigating that, I'm not as light-skinned as you are, but I definitely got advantage from being as light-skinned as I am. And I definitely got some of that, oh, it's it's too bad. You know, you're one of us, Steve. You're not one of them, which was infuriating. You must hear stuff that is far more, you know, far nastier than that when they don't realize who you're talking to. And even that has to feel alienating. And it's like, you know, where do you, where are you? How have you used that sense of, of being, having a certain amount of plasticity in terms of how you want to see yourself? How has that influenced you as an artist? I think one thing that I've become really interested in is I think all of us, all of us share the the goal of holding truth to power in our work. I, I feel like like all of us here and everybody that I've that have been, that, that that's been on your show that I've heard has a similar goal of just like holding truth to power, bringing our political agendas into our work in a in an organic way. And I think that I've recognized through my proximity to whiteness, both through my family and the way that I look and the way that I, like I said that I'm able to move through spaces. I feel like I have a my my superpower is being able to communicate to these people. <laughs> because because of that proximity and i feel like when you're holding truth to power i've i've been i've been really disenchanted in the past few years about our echo chambers that we live in and especially making the type of work that i do for the with historically the type of publishers that i work with like very niche indie comics publishers for instance and i'm making these books that have my whole political agenda laid bare and for the whole world to see but by virtue of the form factor that they take in the in the distribution channels that they're being disseminated through, it's only reaching a very small uh, audience of people who typically think exactly like I do. And so I feel like what I've been trying to do is is think of ways to communicate my ideals to people who feel the opposite uh, way that I do about these things. And I feel like I hope that's something that by virtue of the way I've the way I've been brought up and and who brought me up <laughs> and, and like growing up in small town, Iowa, uh, I hope to be able to, to do that with some efficacy. That's great. Well, I think it is an interesting time in Hollywood when it comes to race and identity and the kind of projects that we all gravitate toward. Although I'm, I'm hearing um, some disenchantment now, people feeling like all the pledges and promises that were made in the wake of George Floyd's murder are, of course, predictably being rolled back. We had an executive tell us once that her friends were saying to her, when are things going to go back to normal? 
<laughs> I can't wait for things to go back to normal. And we all knew that was what people were thinking. People like to work with their friends. People like to see themselves. People like to see themselves centered when we're pitching. How do you feel? How do you feel about the current environment we're in? It's scary, especially coming off of the strikes. I mean, everybody, even 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 beyond what you were just saying, I feel like there's everybody's anticipating a, a constriction of the type of content that's going to be greenlit because because the studios and the, and the streamers are going to become more conservative and try to pitch things down the down the middle and mm-hmm. that middle American audience. And so the niche stuff that we've been enjoying for the past 10 years, like these shows like Atlanta and Fleabag and Pen15, these like really like specific, like miracles of shows. It's hard to imagine shows like that being greenlit going forward. And, and I don't really know how to navigate that yet because I don't know how to change my voice to to be more down the line. Like I said, like I've only ever made work to express, I've only ever made work without an audience in mind. So making work with an audience in mind is feels somewhat foreign to me. So I, I don't know how that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, that, I uh, too have not done that. <laughs> I think, that, I think that, the, that the real task, the only thing you can do is to be the best writer you can be. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing you can control completely. And then you can keep an eye on the market and see, you know, is what I'm doing overlapping with what's with what's working? And you can't predict what people are going to want next year. You can keep looking for the universality in your work. The, the to what degree is, are my characters expressing something that is a deep longing within human beings? Mm-hmm. And I think that if you go deep enough into the specific, you emerge at the universal. I don't have to be a teenage girl to appreciate Barbie mm-hmm. because Barbie was speaking, you know, was not talking about our world as far as I'm concerned. It was talking about the way people feel about our world or by the way girls feel about their lives. I'm not, I'm not interested in arguing that, you know, whether or not it's accurate because what's important is that it is true that people feel this way and that therefore they were able to communicate something that literally had not been said quite like that before, especially not in a way that was as cotton candy and easy to absorb. Brilliantly done piece of work. Mm. And I think it would have been less successful in a less charged political environment, but it still would have been successful. It doesn't have to be the, the huge thing. I think that, that looking at these, at what is working. And have you seen American fiction? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so American good. fiction so is Everybody speaking to it. a truth. And it is clever enough mm-hmm. to speak an extraordinarily painful and poisonous truth in a way that people could absorb, in a way that people could, could appreciate, even though it was talking about them and their prejudices and their preconceptions, it was brilliant enough to be able to take that and do it in a way that worked. So I think that- And it's also still in a a way centering them. Not really. I mean, it centers the main characters, but the experience centers Mm -hmm. dealing with whiteness. So uh, those white viewers, even though the movie is literally making fun of them, can still feel seen. (laughs) Well, I think, I don't think it centered them. I think that it said that, that, it centered the black family. Yeah, of course, of, literally. Of, yeah. of the protagonist trying to navigate this territory. It's a little bit like watching the River Wild. The family 
is the center of that story. The river is the environment. Mm. Okay. So the problems of getting your stories past the gatekeepers mm-hmm. is is the situation. It's the game board that these two people are playing. But you don't care about the board isn't as important as what are the people doing. Mm. And what that movie did was it actually suggests, and I think in a brilliant way that I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to break down some way someday, a path through the rapids. It is it it, it 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 does it theoretically, it does it thematically, and it does it by example, as well as pointing out to other people who also are getting through the system and showing the way they do it. It's, it is the best example of don't hate the player, hate the game I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah, and I think off of off of that and off of your question to Nanari, I think the one of the takeaways is that this the necessary skill set is learning to communicate the universality of the stories that you're writing. And I think yeah. that's the biggest thing I've learned in screenwriting in the past few years is, is if you can, like I'm always struggling with trying to convince people that I'm smart, right? And this just comes back to my insecurity as someone who didn't go to college. So I'm always trying to prove that I deserve to be in this space. And so when I first started pitching stuff, all my pitches were all about like, like, look at how deep I am and, and listen to how smart I am and like how I'm using big words and all this stuff. And I was terrible at it because I was I was being phony. At it. I mean, like I do I do like to think deeply about things, but but that's not what it excites me about things. And I think the thing that excites me and the thing that excites execs and gatekeepers across the board is that emotional connection. If you can dig down, like you're saying, Stephen, to that, like that core universality of emotional connection and and develop compelling characters that people want to spend time with, that has been the single one biggest revelation. Like my early pitches, I would spend weeks working out the plot details on my three pager, like plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point. And when you're going through that with someone who has no investment in your characters, they could not care less about how clever the puzzle machinations of your third act are. Especially in TV. It's all about, this is a character we want to visit and spend time with every week. So I I could not agree with you more. And speaking of TV, you've worked in a couple writer's rooms, correct? Yes. So what has that experience been like for you? And to what degree do you feel like you've been able to get your voice across? Because it's a little tougher. In fact, it's a lot tougher when you're working in a writer's room. And and often we're very low in the writer's room when we first start out getting your voice across. It was a it was definitely a learning experience coming from, like I said, coming from comics, especially with with Upgrade Soul, which is something that I, I wrote it, I drew it, I colored it like that like Upgrade Soul is a largely singular experience. I had some help with inking and coloring with some of the later chapters, but for the most part, it was just me locked in my room doing this thing. I didn't have editors, like I said, nobody telling me boo about anything about this thing. So to go from that to working in a room where, like you said, I'm lowest on the totem pole in a room of five to 10 writers working to realize someone else's vision mm-hmm. was a huge creative shock for sure. And I got really, you know, coming into this world, you get strange advice sometimes. Like someone told me before the first writer's room that you shouldn't say a single word for the first month. And I, and I, and I guess I can kind of see the wisdom of that because, you know, it allows you to observe and and, and feel out the dynamic. But, but I just felt like, I mean, I, someone paid me money to be in this space to do a certain thing and I'm going to try to do it. 
Was it the showrunner who told you that? No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> if, kidding. if it was the showrunner, I would have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Don't what you're but saying about just about be here. Yeah, to prove yourself. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to look at that. You now have, with your experience, the equivalent of a PhD in creative writing. Mm-hmm. Don't let anybody tell you different. Mm-hmm. I, I needed. I had that same insecurity because I did not finish college. I, I went and started working in Hollywood. I had that insecurity for years. And there are ways in which it broke down a little bit once when I started, when I was invited to teach a college class. Mm-hmm. But it didn't fully break down until I was invited to be on a panel at a convention in, at a specialized convention on the East Coast. And every other member of that panel is a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I specifically asked them, why am I on this panel? And they said in no uncertain terms, because your life experience makes you more than a PhD, Steve. And on that panel, and it's happened several times since then, I realized that, yes, if everybody else on that panel is a PhD, I have to bring my A game. But my A game is good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they have ideas. I have ideas. It springs back and forth. And they're listening to me just as much as I'm listening to them. You have real world experience that trumps most of the people who are PhDs in creative writing when it Mm -hmm. comes to Hollywood, Mm -hmm. not when it comes to maybe publishing literary novels or even other novels, but when it comes to understanding what is actually required to create a piece of work and get it there, you're a master. I mean, mastery isn't perfection. It isn't a lack of fear. It isn't that you never get confused. It's that you're on this path and you're, you're on that path enough that people who are not on that path look at you and say, you're a magician. Hmm. There are countless writers on this planet who would give anything to be where you are. And you need to own that and live that because if you do, you can help provide a path for others mm-hmm. simply by helping to demystify the process. And so, you know, we're just incredibly proud of you. And I just wanted to be somebody to tell you, you, you deserve to be here. You deserve. Thank That's you. Right. Thank you deserve what you have deserve. got. Audience, you does he deserve? Are does that he deserve? <laughs> yeah. The audience I really appreciate that, especially coming from you guys. Like you guys know how much I adore and idolize you. And so that really means a lot coming from you guys. Because wow. you admire the way we're walking the path. Where we, where we are on it and, and the way we seem to be embracing it and sharing and so forth. And now, you know, it's, it's been your turn for, for a few years now. So for you to understand that you're on that path too. And it's impossible to measure where you are. There, there's, no, there's no competition there. Anytime you're competing, you're looking at the other person instead of paying attention to what you're doing, which is okay you know, at times you can look back over your shoulder, but when you're looking back over your shoulder, you're not looking at what's coming up ahead. You need to be paying attention to what's right here and what's up ahead. You've earned your way into the opportunity of a lifetime. And the only way you're going to do this is by bringing 100% of who you are. You don't have time to worry what other people are thinking about you. You only have time to ask, is this the best I can do? Mm -hmm. And I think I'm slowly accepting that too. I think being in writer's rooms, my experience in writers rooms as an older writer in these rooms, like I'm, I'm, I'm turning 45 and as a staff writer, as you guys know, like a staff writer past 23 
You're a, you're a, <laughs> yeah, this business is not built for any of us. Yeah, we are not supposed to be geriatric. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I felt like even though I'm coming into this game fairly late compared to a lot of my peers, like you said, Stephen, I'm coming in with with a breadth of of experience and life experience, like putting out books, touring, like touring with punk bands, like going to shows and like living all of these weird, these weird tangents in my life. Compare that to people who, you know, went to film school right out of high school, went through the process, did internships, worked their way up through the normal, uh, the normal way to to get into these rooms. Um, It's a completely different voice that I'm bringing into this space. And I, and I've, I've learned after the first couple of rooms that I was in, that there is immense value to that because, because when I'm making references to things, when I'm pitching stuff in a writer's room, my references are based on my own personal lived experience rather than something I saw on a TV show or, or something that I like read in right. my book at school. That makes a big difference. That was, that was something we were told when we were hired into a writer's room that our life experience made us. That was how they sold us to the network. <laughs> that our life experience makes it so important. Here we are, old codgers, setting Hollywood on fire. <laughs> or at least trying to. So actually this, uh, well, oh, one thing we, we haven't really asked you yet is what is your key to keeping balanced? In all of this, all of the novelty, all of the pressure, how do you keep yourself from, you know, going nuts? Well, I don't know that I've figured out a balance yet, but but I haven't gone nuts yet. So I must have figured out something. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've gone nuts. You seem pretty well balanced uh, the time you. you. <laughs> but I have a pretty stripped back life. I think that's been that's been really helpful. Like. I live with my wife in a, a nice house in South LA and we don't have any kids or pets. And until recently, my family has been really <laughs> removed. So I don't have any family drama to, to distract me. So it's been a pretty, like we have a pretty like a uh, minimalist uh, curated life. I think that's allowed me to focus really um, tightly on things that I'm working on. But I think the big thing for me is just, you know, I, I have a tendency to just like work, 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 work. And I think for a long time, especially earlier in my career, I would work even when I was smashing my head against the wall. Like, I'm sure you guys like know the feeling of you're working on something and then you hit a certain point where like, it's just not, you're, you're squeezing the, the rag or whatever. And like, you might get a drop, but you're putting in way more effort than you're getting back out of it. And I think for a long time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recognize that wall. If I hit that wall, I would think it was a, it was a weakness <laughs> in my creative ability. But I think as I've gotten older, I recognize that wall. And like when my brain is shutting down and my body is stopping, it's telling me to just like stop, back off, go do something else, play a video game, go for a walk, go for a hike, go hang out with somebody like hanging, like socialization is a huge inspiration. Go hang out with somebody like you guys or other writer friends or I, all my best friends have been musicians. I love musicians and songwriters. I feel like it's such a great and painters. Like I love like exposing myself to like non-creative writing. Ah, now you're touching uh, Musashi Miyamoto book of five rings. (laughs) Know the ways of all arts, know the professions. Excellence is excellence. It simply expresses differently in different professions and different arts. And by being with them, you're not wearing out the same neural pathways 
that you were using for writing, but you're seeing how a, a painter or an actor or a singer or a musician does in essence the exact same thing, yeah. you know, combining their physical energies, their emotional truth, and their technical skill in a particular way. And it is it can be absolutely renewing and to understand that they need it too. But you're yeah. providing for them what they're providing for you. And now yeah. we're all in this game together. Ain't it wonderful? And That's non-creative awesome. endeavors has been huge for me too. Like when I was working on Upgrade Soul, I actually, I don't remember even how I did this, but I ended up contacting geneticists to talk to them about some of the science that I was dealing with in Upgrade Soul. And talking with a scientist, like talking with a, I mean, scientists are creative, but like people who were, who are passionate and extremely skilled at things outside the creative arts has been hugely, hugely inspiring too. Just that's people true. that are passionate and skilled about something. Yeah, that's true. And artists take to heart, get out of the house, <laughs> talk to people. Oh my gosh. We did a little bit better with our last artist salon. Actually a lot better. You came and a lot of more people came, but that first year, it was just like getting writers to come <laughs> out of the house and sit down and socialize can be so hard. And it really is a life-saving tonic, yeah, even really for is. an introvert. And I'm a bit of an introvert, but even I need the company of other people. So well, that's one great. of the things that I get from it is what you were saying, Ezra, about the fact that you push yourself and you hit a wall. Mm -hmm. That before you contextualize that by perhaps remembering that you have to push yourself to muscle failure in order to grow, there is the depression, there mm -hmm. is the fear, the anxiety, the stress. To realize that no matter what you do in life, you're going to run into that feeling of emptying yourself out. Mm -hmm. either because you're doing something that does not feed you, so you have a very low threshold for that, or you're doing something that you love and you're, you're beating your head against it until, in, until blood you know, gushes onto the page and makes words. To understand that this is the life you chose, that, that the people, other artists, including people who you admire, and it does, you know, they can, you can simply admire them because they did a particular piece of work that you love. They don't have to be ahead of you. They have to be walking this path with integrity to understand that it's just that path. You're countering something that is a real truth. And that is that in order to become extraordinary, you have to stop doing the ordinary. Hmm. And the average person by definition is doing a lot of ordinary. They have not yet decided to invest themselves fully in who they are, as opposed to what the market wants or what the job wants, or what the boss wants. Hmm. That can feel so lonely. Mm -hmm. And even in, as you start succeeding, people who have justified their lack of success by saying it's not possible will actually feel threatened by you mm -hmm. because your success is proving that they've been lying to themselves. They, they know they could have put in that discipline. They could have put in that 1,000 hours, that 5,000 hours, that 10,000 hours, and chose not to. You chose to spend 17 years working on something, and you're going to run into people who are telling you it was handed to you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get it. But, but when you understand, when you're around other people who have sacrificed for their excellence, there is an essence of the person who is driven by their fear and pulled by their love. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're doing both. This is, this is what we have to do. We don't have any choice, but to do it. This podcast is about the people who have to do the thing. Mm -hmm. It's and it's for people who feel like they have to, but don't know how they're going to do it. 
And this is why we are so grateful to people like you. You didn't have to be here. And part of you, you're here to talk to us and have some fun. But you also know that these words are going out into cyberspace. And 20 years from now, people will be able to hear you talking about this and will be inspired. Hmm. You know, when when we talk about teaching and we do these, these workshops, we're planning to do them three times a year, where we're taking everything that we learn and give it and boil it down to just like, you know, either the courses that we do streaming or a three hour workshop where we are just going as deep as we possibly can for the people who show up there. Uh, this is why we're doing it. Masters are always learning, always doing and always teaching. Yeah, we love teaching. Absolutely love teaching. And I'm, I, especially for people like me and, and, and people like Ezra and, and Steve too, when he first started out, Screenwriting is such a mystery. It's such a club in terms of how to get in. If you interview 10 different screenwriters about how they got into the business, they all have 10 different stories. But there are some principles in preparation that can ready you. You know, they say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So when that opportunity comes, have that script ready, you know, have that sample ready. That's why we're doing our first live screenwriting seminar of the year on February 17th at screenwritingwebinar.com, where I especially like it when prose writers come. But whether you're doing comics, prose, journalists, whoever you are, if you've been curious about how do you write screenplays, how do you do creative writing even, it is a toolbox for anyone who is an aspiring screenwriter or a developing screenwriter. You might yeah. already have been writing scripts, but but believe me, I uh, I take notes when Steve is talking and he takes notes when I'm talking. I oh, mean, you better believe it. I've learned so much from you, Tananarie. Just, you know, it's 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 great and it's just challenging to have a writer at your level who I can talk to at any time. That's, you know, it's kind of amazing. Well, I love it. Uh, and honey. I'm glad that we have not yet torn each other's throats out because yeah, God knows, you, you know, that it, it has it has been challenging. But one of the things that, you know, we both love this so much, and so many of the people who helped us along the way did it either in the context of a class or gratis, that we want to make absolutely certain that any, any sincere writer can take this course. So we've done something that is unique. That is that we're trusting you. The full price is right there on the website. But if you can't afford the full price, you email us. We have the information right there, and we will send you a link that will allow you to pay what you can afford. That's right. That, That's that right. We are trusting paid. the integrity of people to not abuse us in this. And what we did last time, it was very successful because the great. people who could afford to do it did it. And people could not afford to do it. Literally, we would take anything from them as long as they were sincere because what is great is when you have 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 people on a on a on a Zoom and the energy from being around other people who are loving this is great. So if you will bring your energy and your integrity that's more important to us than the money. But if you can afford it, please support the work, you know, by paying full price if you can, but we are totally sincere. We'll take what you can afford. That's, that's right. www.screenwritingwebinar.com and Ezra, you have been a fantastic guest. We are so happy for you with your success. Where yes. can people learn more about you, find you if they want to reach out? Are you on social media? Oh, man, I am 
I've got one leg left in social media. I'm really trying to get out, but you can still find me on Instagram at Ezra C. Daniels. Um, my website is www.ezracdaniels.com. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think about anything that I can announce or promote, but I don't, everything's secret. As you guys know, like I can't talk about anything. Stay tuned, everybody. He'll have some news coming. And as a side note, I know it must have been maddening for you waiting for that announcement about people under the stairs. <laughs> oh, my God. That was probably a year before you were allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, congratulations again on that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Everybody, I hope you're as inspired as we are. Go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Ezra, thank you so much for doing this. We were, you were a great guest. We love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.